Hello and welcome to Talking Finance, the Constant Investor's weekly half-hour radio show in the week of our first anniversary. This week, a bit of politics with Paul Kelly of The Australian explaining what's going on with energy policy, or at least the slow and painful attempt by the government to get one. We also deal with the latest pronouncement by APRA on bank capital, which saw the bank share prices surge on Wednesday. We take China's pulse following the release of the latest GDP numbers, and we bring some of the best of last week's first constant investor lunch on investing in the digital age. First, editor-at-large of The Australian and the nation's preeminent political journalist, Paul Kelly. I asked him whether the ALP's adopting Finkel's clean energy target means the coalition now won't touch it. No, I don't think that's right. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull said when the Finkel report was released that he looked on it very favourably. And there's no doubt that Turnbull wants to support and legislate a form of clean energy target as recommended by Finkel. The fact that, if you like, Bill Shorten has got in first, modified Labor's position and endorsed a clean energy target uh, creates, I think, difficulties for Turnbull with his own backbench and his own constituency. But I think it would be wrong to conclude that this means this is no longer uh, an option for the Prime Minister. But the difficulties, I presume, mean that they'll have to in some way compromise or change it in order to uh, appease the right wing of the, of the Liberal Party. That's certain. There's no question about that. What we're looking at here is stitching up some sort of compromise package. Now, at this stage, the government, the Prime Minister, and the, and the Energy Minister, Josh Frydenberg, have not worked out exactly what that will involve. But we can be certain that there will be modifications and probably significant modifications to what Finkel has recommended. And one of the issues there is the role of coal and how the clean energy target is set and whether in theoretical terms there might be a role for so-called clean coal under that framework or whether the government has got to look at some other mechanism to support coal outside the clean energy target arrangement. Do you think that the Abbott-led forces in the coalition or in the Liberal Party will accept the possibility of coal as opposed to the fact of coal, if you know what I mean? That's a critical question. And my answer to that is that I don't think Tony Abbott will, and I don't think that a number of the Conservatives will. They're not going to be persuaded or appeased by a gesture, by a theoretical gesture in relation to coal. Uh, I think they want something that's fair income. They want something that's more tangible and serious. And and so this, I think, is um, a real issue. And it does, to a certain extent, go to the position of Deputy Prime Minister and Nationals Leader, 
Barnaby Joyce, who I think is playing a really interesting role in all this at the moment. Do you think he's the kind of middleman, the, the, the negotiator of the piece? I don't think he's uh, the key middleman, but you'll recollect that in 2009, when the coalition had the great crisis over climate change, that was led by the nationals. Uh, the nationals would not accept Kevin Rudd's scheme and the nationals would not accept Malcolm Turnbull's position as leader keen to support Kevin Rudd. Now, I think the situation today is different, although, of course, there would be varying opinions in the National Party. But it's very clear from what Barnaby Joyce has said as Deputy Prime Minister that he wants a solution. <laughs> I mean, the point is that, that Barnaby Joyce is in the Cabinet. Um, he's committed to getting a policy that works. Um, and what he said is he's sympathetic and supportive of the Finkel report. He said it's important that the Finkel report be brought to a positive conclusion. He's been supportive of the clean energy target, but the trade-off that he's clearly putting on the table is that he wants a place for coal. But Barnaby Joyce has also distinguished himself from Tony Abbott. He's not interested in some sort of drum-beating uh, political campaign on this issue that's driven by an oppositionist mentality. As Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce wants a policy that can actually work. It's a tremendous challenge for Josh Frydenberg, isn't it? I mean, if he pulls this off, he'll become a star, won't he? It is a really big challenge for Josh Frydenberg. And I think he's done very well so far uh, in handling what is the single most difficult brief of any senior minister in the Turnbull government in terms of their a portfolio responsibility challenges. Uh, I mean, we've had a number of ministers who faced very great difficulties, such as Simon Birmingham on Gonski and Greg Hunt on reconfiguring health policy, uh, both of which was done in the May 2017 budget. But there's no doubt that Josh Frydenberg's challenge is uh, the most significant one. And there are many dangers in this and many pitfalls for him as well. But uh, I think he's approaching this in two ways. Uh, he knows that they've got to get a tenable policy sorted out. And that tenable policy has got to play into the politics. And the politics is such that the Turnbull government has got to have a powerful political position based on a lot of product discrimination between themselves and Labor so they can try and campaign against Labor on power prices all the way through to the next election. This week, APRA came out with its long-awaited capital ratio requirement to make the banks unquestionably strong. 10.5% tier one ratio by 2020, please. But instead of slumping, as you might expect, bank share prices jumped 3 to 4% in a day. I asked long-time bank analyst Brett LeMessurier from Velocity Trade what happened. 
So I think um, a number of analysts had been out there saying that there were going to be large equity raisings, and I, I'm guessing that those analysts were related to investment banks which would have charged substantial fees for such underwriting. Well, indeed, and uh, what the banks seem to be saying today is that they won't be needing to make any equity raisings. It's going to be fine. Yes, and not only did they say that, but also APRA said that in their announcement today. They were quite quite clear in saying that the additional capital requirements would be satisfied by banks proceeding as they currently are, which is basically uh, the current level of dividends, growing their retained earnings, some use of dividend reinvestment plans, and there would be no equity raising. Do you think that we're now done, that the banks are unquestionably strong as required? Yes, but of course, it's the way APRA defines it on a relative basis. Uh, the goalposts change. The goalposts change based on what happens with their international peers, and those capital ratios have been increasing consistently over the last few years. And while the rate of increase has slowed, it's still increasing. Now, APRA in its 7.5% has allowed for a further increase in that. But there's something to come later in the year, which is uh, potential changes to risk weightings. And uh, if, for example, risk weightings increase on mortgages, then the whole amount of capital for the global banking industry may increase and may increase more for our banks. But I'm guessing the way that APRA has approached it so far any such increase in capital would also not be accompanied by equity raising. So will today's announcement by APRA make any difference to the bank's profitability, do you think? Uh, It provides more impetus for upward pressure on margins and APRA kindly put in the last page of their release today that to maintain their ROEs or return on equity, then banks may increase their margins by 10 basis points. But we have seen with the repricing of mortgages over the last six months or so, that that increase in margin has substantially taken effect, particularly for Westpac. They're likely to show quite a reasonable increase in their net interest margin from the first half of the 2017 financial year to the second half of the 2017 financial year. In fact, it's notable that there's been a big widening of the gap between the Reserve Bank cash rate and the average standard variable mortgage rate by the banks uh, over recent times. Yes, and particularly for investor loans as well, and interest-only versions of investor loans. They are now, they have standard variable rates for those up over 6%, but obviously substantial discounts would typically be offered on that 6% number, so people probably are paying much closer to 5 But nevertheless, it's a long way above the cash rate. That's led some people to, to observe that maybe APRA is now running monetary policy instead of the Reserve Bank. Uh, I think that's quite a fair assessment, yes. What's your current recommendation on the banks, Brett? I currently have buy recommendations on uh, the major banks. All of them? And Yes, I do now. I, I Up until a little while ago, I had a sell on ANZ, but... Uh, that fell quite significantly, so that switched to buy recently as well. And obviously, today that works. What's the basis of the buy recommendation? Fundamentally on banks, I think the uh, increases in capital requirements are substantially finished and asset quality continues to be extremely good and probably will be for a while. 
the uh, fly in the ointment is probably going to be unsecured personal debt and unsecured debt as it flows into small business. And ANZ has the greatest exposure there. So if you're thinking about future risks, notwithstanding the fact that ANZ is probably in the strongest capital position, it's the most vulnerable from an asset quality perspective. And what about um, the smaller banks, Bendigo and Bank of Queensland in particular? What's likely to take place in the in market shares over coming years? Uh, well, they will continue to struggle. They do relatively well as funding markets improve, but absolutely they have no material comparative advantage. So they're at the effectively the women of the major banks and the competitive competitive pressures that exist there. So to the extent that the major banks back off some of the price competition on the asset and the liability side, the regional banks win disproportionately, but as pressure intensifies, they're the losers. You say you've got to buy on all the banks, all the big banks. Which is your favourite of them? At the moment, I think Commonwealth Bank uh, looks the best value. Notwithstanding the higher multiple, by a higher multiple is justified by its higher ROE. And uh, then after that, it's a toss-up between Westpac and NAB. And you're not concerned about uh, coming fintech competition? Uh, yes, competition uh, from external sources is always a risk for them, but they have tremendous capacity to fight competition and really sub- substantial competition which arises in the, in the local market has basically, one way or another, disappeared. In fact, if you take the uh, overseas banks when you, you roll back the decades when they were going to attack our major banks, they were spectacularly unsuccessful and blew up. So they're chasing. So it needs to needs to come from other sources. But still, the banks have spent billions of dollars on IT, so they're not behind the game there. They have relationships with just about everyone in the country. As usual, China's statisticians, working feverishly around the clock presumably, have produced the June quarter GDP numbers two weeks after the end of the quarter. Our lot take two leisurely months. It's the tortoise and the hare, really, or else it's the difference between true and, well, might be true. Nevertheless, China boffins pore over the numbers and pretend or believe they're accurate, and one of them is Jared Berg, Senior Economist for Asia at NAB. I asked him what he learned this week. Well, it looks like China's economy is still growing a bit stronger than a lot of us were expecting. Stable is kind of the watchword, I suppose, when it comes to most of the data. We saw growth continuing at 6.9%, the same rate that we saw in the first quarter. And even when we broke things down to um, growth in the services sector and growth in the the traditional industrial sector, things were stable there as well. So things continue to roll on and growth is looking stronger than targets for this year. And what about the individual bits of data like retail sales and industrial production? Any kind of surprises there? No, not necessarily surprises in terms of retail. I mean, it pushed back above um, 10% as far as real retail sales were concerned. And so that still is a, a strong indication that that you know, slow transition towards more of a consumption-based economy is continuing. Perhaps the, the spike that we saw in industrial production up above 7% was a little bit of a surprise. But you know, the, that was really accompanied by very strong conditions within the steel sector. And so there's still some life within the older parts of China's economy as well. So, overall, it sounds like the Chinese economy is doing fine. 
Yeah, look, it's performing reasonably well at the moment. And as I said, we were expecting a bit more of a slowdown this quarter. I suppose the one concern really still relies uh, or lies around um, the strength of credit growth. So credit growth is still comfortably outpacing um, nominal GDP. And there's a few concerns about the rising levels of debt within China's economy and how they're going to manage to uh, you know, address that over the medium term. Well, in fact, a few people reckon that the place is he- heading towards a cliff. I mean, it, it is slightly more than concerning, isn't it? I mean, it kind of can't go on, surely. Well, I mean, it, it all depends on how strongly China's government is able to control its state-owned enterprises, where most of the debt seems to lie. Comments late last week from President Xi indicated that he wants a program to deleverage the SOE sector. Um, and within the space of broader financial reforms, we'd like to see you know, more debt going towards the, the more adaptable companies in the private sector and less of it going to those um, big state behemoths. And the other question, I guess, is uh, one that I've often wondered about is, uh, can we believe this data two weeks after the end of the quarter? There's always a lot of scepticism, I suppose, about uh, Chinese numbers and you know the, the fact that there's relatively little revision to them when you compare it to most of that of the, uh, the Western world. I tend to rely on the views of on-the-ground experts who've, who've sort of suggested to me in the past that the numbers may not be 100% accurate, but the direction of the numbers is strong. So we take more, more guidance from the, um, the signal than the, uh, the actual uh, number that prints. A lot of people look at other data, such as electricity production or cement production and so on. Do you have a look at that? And if so, what do they show? Yeah, well, electricity production has been quite strong in the early part of this year, broadly in line with what we're seeing in the industrial trends for the economy. Cement has slowed quite considerably more recently, which is perhaps a little surprising given the continued strength in in the domestic construction space. It's perhaps pointing to a a slowing trend to come. That would be something that we'd be a little bit hopeful for. But certainly electricity continues to show strength in the industrial space. I think the concern when you're looking at those indicators more generally, however, is they're very much indicators of of the old model of growth around the industrial sector. And the the big black hole that we have really is is in terms of indicators for services, which is, you know, now over 55% of China's economy. And that's a bit of a worry for for, for China watchers such as myself, that we sort of have a, a big blind spot there. How do you think the consumer economy in China is going? It's very mixed. Generally, it's been performing more strongly than the uh, rest of the economy. It's providing a, a larger share of growth. But, you know, it's, it's very hard to gauge. We get regular information on, on retail sales. We get uh, slightly less regular information on things like transport and communications. And then we look at, at signals like the, the PMI surveys for the services sector. You know, in, in many respects, the services sector is uh, less regulated than, than what we have here. And so we, we do tend to see lots of innovation within this space. But at times that means some considerable risks as well when you think of the, the growth in shadow banking, for example, within the financial services space. Here are some highlights of the panel discussion that included Adrian Turner from the CSIRO division called Data61 and Alex Pollock of Loftus Peak Investment Management. Adrian was working in Silicon Valley during the 1990s tech bubble and bust. We pick up the discussion after I ask Adrian to reflect on that period and whether what we're seeing now is just the beginning or the end. I think it is just the beginning. Um, I mean, it was an absolute privilege to be over in the States, up close, seeing two cycles in the valley. So 
Um, we got there in the late 90s, um, saw the, the first boom and bust. Um, I remember visiting Amazon and meeting with Bezos when there were 25 people, going to Jeff Skull's place, the founder of eBay, when there were 30 people, seeing Mark Zuckerberg pretty well every morning in the, in the local coffee shop getting coffee. And what, what you realise from that, that whole time is um, a lot of these people, you don't know what you have at the time. Tony Fidel, who ended up being the guy that created the iPhone, um, worked with me inside of Philips. We teamed together. He was running mobile. I was running data services. The iPod, he couldn't get it funded um, with venture. Jobs ended up buying it for pennies on the dollar. And uh, that technology became the iPod. Um, so a, a tremendous uh, experience. I built businesses over there uh, as well and uh, came back to Australia because I have a genuine concern about the way the country's tracking. Adrian, uh, one gets the feeling, and it, feels, it sounds a bit like this is why you came back to Australia, you get the feeling that uh, Australian companies, particularly large Australian companies, kind of have no idea what's coming at them. No. I mean, it's like uh, they're sitting ducks. Is that, do you think that's right? So if, if you look at the country's G&I, we had growth through productivity reforms from the Hawke-Keating era. Um, and we saw that unfold in the 90s. In the 2000s, we had G&I growth from terms of trade. Gross national income. Yep. So we're not going to see the same sort of gains from productivity or terms of trade. The only way forward for the country is to create new industry. Those industries are going to be underpinned at some level by data. And when they're underpinned by data, they're, they're going to exhibit these platform economics. Um, and today, it's roughly 70% of the market value is captured by the leader in a category. I think what people are misunderstanding, and I think this is through the public sector and the private sector here, is the structural changes that are going on. So, so this shift towards digital or mobile, it's not just about operational efficiency and new sorts of experiences. It's about fundamentally rewiring value chains. Um, and I'll give you an example in ag. So we think there's three things going on, or I think there's three things going on. So the first thing is you have this convergence of IT, particularly evolving to machine learning and AI, with material sciences and with biology. That's going to be the foundation for the industries for the next 15 to 20 years. Those two new technologies and how we interact with those technologies as people will define where jobs come and go. And we're going to experience some pain through that transition. Um, because of government policy intervention, it'll be smoother than it could be. There'll still be pain. As a result of the first two, then we're going to have a complete redefining of the social contract and, and even the role of government in the world that we're moving to. So within all of that, there's structural change that's going on. Within all of that, I think there's a lot of opportunity for Australia. We have the smarts. We have great, we have great universities. We have smart people. Money will go wherever the ideas are at. What we need to change is we need to be willing to be leaders. And today, we're not. Adrian, how um, disruptive do you think blockchain is going to be? I think it's the real deal. And I think where we are right now is analogous to the mid-90s with the web, early days. So we've just completed a report for Treasury or with Treasury looking at blockchain. And we went down and we've actually looked at the protocols themselves, like how fit for purpose, how ready, how mature. And then we looked at different classes of applications. So 
a lot of talk about digital currency and the application of digital currency towards digital currency. There's work to do there. There's trials going on around the world. Big element is a behavioral element as well. It's not just a technology challenge. But for things like asset tracking and monitoring, um, smart contracts, we think it's going to be important. Why is it important? So blockchain is an open distributed ledger that's tamper-proof. Why is that important? Any, anywhere today that there's a trusted intermediary sitting in the middle of a transaction, like a bank, that's providing that confidence and trust, um, this can replace that. Um, this, this technology has potential to replace that. The other thing that's really interesting is the cyber, it's, it's not cybersecurity, but in cybersecurity, think CIA, like, like the agency, CIA, are the three pillars of cybersecurity, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Adrian, I was, I was actually struck by when you said it's, it's in the 90, this is about the late 1990s for blockchain, right? And the 90s, 2000 crash and so on for internet stocks. Are we likely to see something similar in blockchain? I mean, there is this madness going on with cryptocurrencies, with uh, initial coin offerings coming out every second day and so on. There seems to be a lot of hype going on there, but it's not the same thing in the sense that it's not IPOs or company stocks going up, it's coins. Yeah, so there is no doubt that there's a lot of hype right now, and the hype is ahead of reality. But there's also a lot of people starting to work with blockchain. Uh, technology and uh, there's there's also coordination starting to take place globally um, in terms of working groups and standards and so it's possible that, that there's a boom bust cycle but relaying that back to the 2000s the other thing that happened at that time in the US was if you think about it retail investors were willing to invest earlier so you had companies that were going public that didn't have the proven track records that they did. And then you have today, um, you, know, you have Sarbanes-Oxley and you have the opposite, opposite taking place where you've got these companies that want to stay private for longer. They're tapping private equity and later stage funds, which is completely changing the dynamic on the left coast of the US. I mean, if you talk with people over there now, it's with Wall Street, with private equity moving in, the culture in the whole place has changed a lot as well. But now it's the reverse, right? People are complaining that companies are uh, staying private too long. I mean, Amazon went public at what, like $400 million market cap or something around that. Um, Facebook went public at $100 billion market cap yeah. or something like that. Alex, um, how do we identify a good disruptor? And, and in answering that, tell us the difference between technology and disruption. The easy one on the... It's actually not difficult to look at... First of all, look for what's being disrupted. So look for an industry with an antiquated cost structure where the product fundamentally doesn't meet the, you know, the new needs of what's coming out. And we see that, for example... The classic example right now is in the electric car. The electric car does away with 70% of the moving parts that exist in the internal combustion engine. The cat crackers, the exhaust pipes, the uh, turbos, all that stuff is gone, removed entirely. And on top of that, unless it's actually coal-fired or gas-fired power stations, if it's, a, if it's solar and wind, it gets rid of a large chunk of the, the resources that are used to fuel the car as well. So you look for industries where there is fundamental change taking place, 
and then you look to see who is driving that change most effectively with lower unit cost economics, etc. I wanted to touch actually on one point about why we are not, why, is, you know, you said sitting ducks, Australian companies are sitting ducks. Australian company managements are sitting ducks, and the reason that, we're, that they are sitting ducks is because it's kind of been easy with a relatively small population base to just have a half a dozen industries, the banks, a few resource companies, some retail, and they basically carve up the market between themselves. There's no incentive to mess with the magic. There is no real necessity while things are kind of set for anybody to come along and seriously break down the magic that currently exists, which is generating all those returns. This was the way it was in the US as well. This is why Kodak, which invented the digital camera, didn't, didn't actually wind up being, you know, making it successful. Angel investors and VCs see the op opportunities that companies won't take. And they take those opportunities and they make them into something, and that's why we've had this massive flowering of disruption. It's very, very difficult if you are a corporate board to, in Australia today to actually sit there and say, I've got this existing business, it's generating billions of dollars of cash flow a year. I should basically not look at, uh, look at that, I should be looking over here at this tiny little startup business that's just starting off and doing tiny little numbers. Even though that is the future, because all of my executives over here are being remunerated on that way, my shareholders are being remunerated in that way. There is no incentive for me to really move to this tiny little thing, even if it possibly could succeed, because I've just got to pay all the people that are in the equation today. You see this with what VW is doing with the, the, the diesel scandal. They've got to keep rolling out petrol engine cars, even though they know it's kind of going electric. Australian companies generally struggle to disrupt themselves because because basically it's, it's ruining a perfectly viable business model that will run as long as they run, it runs, milk it while you can, and then, as it were, when it gets disrupted, it's over, and that's the next management's problem. Sorry, Jared Brown for Brown Capital. For Alex, I've heard uh, you speak in many forums, as you know. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening with Tesla and then Google Cars? Um, yeah. Tesla is it's something we hold, and we've held it for a while. These things are a lot simpler than people think they are. We talked before, you know, for a moment about the simplicity involved in manufacturing an electric car, the, the fact that, you know, 70% of the parts you actually do away with. It's just basically a bunch of batteries on wheels. You know, you open up the front, you open up the back, there's no motor in either of those two places. By December of this year, Musk will be up to 20,000 cars per month by December of this year. He'll probably miss that target by a couple of months, by a couple of thousand. That's not important. He's going to have done 250,000 cars in a period which will end in 12 months this month or the next. Or the next. He will get to 500,000 cars next year in 18. By 2020, he will be up to 1 million cars. At a million cars at $60,000 per car, that is a $60 billion revenue company. This is not a joke. It's not trivial. The car companies are kind of running around saying, oh, we have one too. It's kind of irrelevant. They, they do have one too. They've also got a massive supply chain in car parts for the internal combustion engine, which, which, which is worth in the half trillion or trillion dollars worth of value, which must be written off. The better they do, so to speak, 
the existing car companies in electric, the worse their write-offs have to be in petrol. Meanwhile, what Tesla is doing is producing a million cars two years hence for a $60 billion revenue number. This is not trivial, it's not a joke, and it's easy to see uh, you know, why that is such a persuasive investment case. And in fact, it's classic disruption, isn't it's it? It's classic disruption. What happened in 2000 was, it's simply this, the market got a bit ahead of itself. Yes, the internet was coming, but the early stages of, you know, the disruption that was taking place, people, and there was, you know, steep value creation going on, but the market got a bit ahead of itself because they thought that investors would continue to fund that which was going on until they got to profitability, but profitability was a bit further away. What we also, than they thought at the time, what we also know is that what they thought about at the time that it was going to be big was actually correct. It wasn't obvious for a number of years, but actually it, it's way bigger than they even dreamed about in, in 1999. The business cases are so much larger and the success of these companies is so much greater. But what I would say is that Amazon has only ever raised money once and they did a bond issue. I don't think I know the last time that Apple raised money. I know that Google only raised money in the IPO and a couple of venture rounds before that. Uh, um, these companies are debt free, they're sitting on cash mountains. Um, we are not in this situation where, and they're generating huge cash flows, and where they're not generating huge cash flows, they've got sufficient equity basis to get them through on a, a kind of a, a, a visible business plan. So my comment is, we did learn the lessons from 2000. The business case for these things has been proved out. They are now cash machines, you know. It's not just Google with $100 billion. It's not just Apple, but Tencent's got $100 billion. The big companies are massively debt, first of all, debt-free, and they also have massive cash balances. This is not a rerun. This is actually just the kind of somewhat delayed destiny that, that was on offer. People did know this in 2000, but they got the investment case structures right. It's rolling out now. Happy birthday, Carlos Santana, the world's second greatest guitarist. The greatest, of course, is Eric Clapton. Anyway, we celebrated Santana's birthday on our first podcast a year ago when he turned 69. Today, he turned 70. Last year, we played a bit of Song of the Wind. This year, Black Magic Woman. And yes, you can look forward to Santana serenading our own birthday every year. Got a black magic woman Got a black magic woman I've got a black magic woman Got me so blind I can see That she's a black magic woman She's trying to make a devil out of me Don't turn your back on me, baby I'm blessed with a wonderful team here at The Constant Investor. We've worked hard and had a lot of fun these past 12 months constructing a unique multimedia publication for investors, which, just like the digital age itself, has only just begun. There's managing editor James Brandis, producer Buffy Gorilla, journalists Dave Thornton and Rachel Allen Barkas, my daughter Phoebe managing subscriptions and operations, marketing and IT manager Rody Bajo, bookkeeper and assistant Sharon Royal, and recently, Percy Allen 
founder and editor of Market Timing. Thanks a million to them and to you for your support. And we're looking forward to serving you for many more years to come. And I'll see you on Saturday morning. Thank you.